So I saw this cartoon the other day that uh, trying to explain Jesus saves, and, and Jesus is, is sitting at a, at a table, and there's this angel, you know, behind him watching, looking over his shoulder, and Jesus has this very serious kind of look on his face, and he's cutting out coupons. The caption says, Jesus saves. <laughs> so uh, we, don't, we don't always instinctually get this right. Uh, but these passages are intended to help us just get a picture of what does it mean when God redeems his people. And, and what the prophet is trying to say is that what's happening here in this big backstory is that God is gathering a people. He's gathering them from the ends of the earth. And so, you know, Babylon was to the Jewish people a very real exile with very real hardship. I mean, it was, it was a very human event, but it also was a big iconic event meaning they were as far as God as you could possibly be. So Babylon became this sort of iconic thing of this is about as far away from God as his people could possibly be. And God's now calling them back from the farthest away, the most extreme. He's gathering them. But he's gathering them not just to say, it's okay now, I forgive you, but he's gathering them for a task. And what Jeremiah is seeing and saying to us is that when God's picking this team for this task, that he includes people that we may not pick for the team. That when God starts calling people back, Jeremiah says, among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. There will be this great throng that will include the rejected, the left out, and the left behind. And Jeremiah says, they're going to come, you know, weeping, and this weeping is a couple of things, probably probably weeping over, you know, in sorrow for their sin. Um, sin in the Old Testament has a, a kind of a little different word group around it to explain it than, than sin in the New Testament. I mean, they're, they're sorry, they're similar, uh, but in some ways different. In the Old Testament, sin means to kind of live your life in opposition to God's will to forsake God and what he's doing, and to turn and go your own way. And they did, and found themselves in exile in Babylon. And they're weeping over it, but they're now also weeping at joy that God is bringing them back. And God says to them, as I bring you back, um, there, a conversation's gonna start again. Do you see that in that Jeremiah text? As you come back, we're gonna begin to talk to each other again. A big part of what it means to be saved has to do with um, reconciliation. It has to do with the resumption of a relationship so that an ongoing conversational relationship with God is normative. And it's not just normative sort of post-Pentecost, you know, with the, the coming of the Spirit. Having an ongoing conversational relationship with God was normative even in the times of Jeremiah and when they were coming back from exile. I, I, you know, there's only so much and a big part of what I want to do this morning is say, hey, we're, <clears throat> we're kind of turning a corner here, it feels to me like we've been gathering here in this room on Sunday mornings. I think this is our 12th or 13th time, basically for the fourth quarter of 2009. And now we're, we're starting this new year. And, and I think we're turning a corner uh, similar to what's happening here with these guys. And, uh, you know, there's so much in my heart, so much in my head, I'm sure in, in your guys' hearts and heads, visions that you have for this church and hopes and dreams, you know, but there's only so much you can do in a quarter of the year. One of the things that I think we just haven't said enough about, but we will as the months turn into years ahead, is that I don't know what backgrounds we all come from regarding the person and work of the Holy Spirit. 
I mean, there could be classic Pentecostals in this room that I just don't know that yet. Uh, there could be people who come from cessationist backgrounds, you know, sort of a, a Dallas seminary dispensationalist point of view. You know, we may have people from the whole spectrum, and I don't know. But I know this, that one cannot be a Christian one cannot be the renewed people of God without a profound daily interaction with the person and work of the Holy Spirit. It's just, it's sub-biblical, it's sub-Christian. I mean, there's, there's no way of being Christian without that happening. And so I don't much care whether that ends up looking for you sort of like a really passionate and powerful prayer life or it ends up looking something different to you. It doesn't matter. But what part of what these people are weeping at joy over is that God's bringing them back on track with the story and the covenant. He's going to help them to be faithful again. He's restoring them to their election and intention. Meaning, as we come back together here, as we start this conversation again, God with his people, I'm restoring you. And that's another part of what it means to be saved, restoration or being reconfigured or being put back together. Uh, a few years ago, uh, when Debbie and I were living in uh, Yorba Linda off of uh, Kellogg, there was a neighbor across the street from us who restored cars. And he had one particularly amazing, I don't remember, 55, 56, 57 Chevy, some, somewhere in there. It was amazing. But he never drove it. It was a looker. And when God calls his people back, he's saying, I'm not calling you back just iconically. You're not just a looker. You're a driver. You're going to be put to use again because this is why I created you in the first place. You're sort of my cosmic first responders. I created the world. It went bad. I created a people who would be my agents of reconciling the world to me. So as I call you back and restore you, it's not to put you in a garage with roll-down doors. It's to create you a, into a people who are a driver and who work with me and who are my cooperative friends. So I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to recover you. I'm going to deliver you. And when this happens, Isaiah says, the people will shout for joy because they'll be like a well-watered garden. They'll sorrow no more. Their mourning will turn to gladness. Comfort and joy will come in the place of sorrow and God's people will be filled with bounty. Now, Paul just simply sees this happening right in front of his face. I mean, you flash forward a couple thousand years and you just see Paul seeing this happening right in front of him that the Ali Ali income free doesn't just apply to exiled Jews, but the Ali Ali income free applies to Gentiles as well. And the irony of this passage in Ephesians is that Paul's writing this letter from jail. Having been jailed precisely for arguing that the Gentiles were in. Because when Paul started saying, hey, the Ali Ali income free of God includes outsiders, faithful Jews, of course, said, no way, Paul, you're a heretic. Because if being Jewish means anything, it means that we are this particular chosen people. And you can't mix it with Gentiles or Samaritans because if you mix it, then by definition, we're no longer pure, pure, pure Jewish. And so the, the Orthodox Jews got, would get into big hassles and fights and street brawls. And, and because the, the local Jewish leaders didn't want to draw the negative attention of the Roman government, they put Paul in jail. And so Paul's in jail writing this letter to the Ephesians saying, look, 
I'm here because I've been advocating for outsiders. I'm here in jail precisely because I've been saying outsiders are in. And so then Paul says, look, this is the mystery I'm trying to, get a, trying to get across to you. And I love the way Peterson gets it in the message. The mystery is that people who have never heard of God and those who have heard of him all their lives, what I've been calling outsiders and insiders, they all stand on the same ground before God. They get the same offer, the same help, the same promises in Christ Jesus. So Paul says the message is now accessible and welcoming to everyone across the board. Now, let me tell you something I've seen in the last 10, 12 years of my life. Some of us thought we were making a big advance for the cause of Christianity and humanity when we stopped hating outsiders. You know, homosexuals, people with AIDS, divorced people, and started hating the church whom we thought was rejecting her. And at some point down that road, it thought to me, wait a minute, we're still haters. We've just shifted who we hate. And Paul's point is, you can neither hate insiders or outsiders. Errant Jews, whacked out Samaritans, faraway Gentiles, they're all God's people. And God's saying to all of them, ollie, ollie, income free. Everybody, even people in churches who you don't like. Even churches that you don't like, God likes them and says, they're in, they're my people. Even big, mechanistic, modern, megachurches, God likes them and says they can be in. Even little tiny home groups who are very proud of their homeness, you know, and God likes them, they're in. It's ollie, ollie income free. Not big churches income free, insiders income free, outsiders. It's everybody income free because you're all a part of my people. You're all a part of this thing that I'm doing. And similar to what happened when the Jews came back, Paul's just seeing the same thing when he says, look, God is going to do for the Gentiles what he did for you when he brought you back out of your exile. He's going to strengthen all of you. He's going to give all of you the Holy Spirit. He's going to give all of you power. Do you see now why I'm saying any kind of Christianity that is not daily interacting with the person work of the Holy Spirit is sub-biblical, sub-Christian. Because the whole promise of coming back to God is an ongoing interactive relationship with him. So Paul says, don't worry, God's going to strengthen you. He'll give you spirit, power, knowledge of his love, and you'll be filled with the fullness of God. Now, ironically, when we get to the Matthew passage, we learn that from two different angles... Exile is a part of our story. Exile is a part of Holy Trinity Church's story. Now, interestingly, you remember the big hubbub in the election cycle with uh, Obama's pastor from Chicago? I can't think of his name now. Yeah, you remember that big hubbub? Well, that kind of thinking is all through the African-American and Latin and other churches. They read the Bible differently than we do. Now, I don't mean to say what's right or wrong here. What I'm saying is they see these themes of exile and they feel it because they were slaves. Uh, refugees to our country from Russia or Eastern Europe or Latin America, they read these texts and go, yeah, yeah, I get it. 
like, again, you never hear me as uh, putting I- any of this down. I love Christmas as much as anybody. I love, uh, what do you call it, uh, the figurines and the manger. I love nativities. Uh, I love pictures of nativities on cards. I love all that stuff. And I love it as, just as much as anybody. But I just wanted you to think this morning, who of you in reading the Christmas story have ever thought refugee? Jesus was a refugee. Paul was a refugee. Paul had the threat of ongoing exile against him. Jesus actually had a death threat over his head. His family had to actually flee and become refugees and exiles in Egypt in order for the plan of God to unfold. So from this long one historic, you know, sort of point of view, exile and refugee is a part of our story. We just don't see it clearly. It's sort of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs because that's never been a part of who we are. We see other aspects of Christmas, but people for whom that's touched their lives. Now, here's the second. It's a shorter historical track, but nevertheless, a second track. Our Archbishop, Emmanuel Kalini of Rwanda, has been refugeed more than once. And, it's, and, and, and a, a bishop in Rwanda, John Rushahana, who was arguably, if you've read the book Never Silent, you'll know this story. If not, you need to get it and read it. Um, but Rushahana, who was in the early days actually more instrumental in these American Anglican churches becoming connected to Rwanda, when you sit and talk with these men, here's how they talk about it. We had to run. They don't use the word exile. They don't first say we were refugees. They say we had to run. So imagine you're pregnant and, I don't know, the Mexican or Canadian government or something somehow overruns America. And you get a call from your mother-in-law. You got to run. Literally get out of your house. Don't take anything. Get in your car and get across the border because they're going to kill you. That's the real story of Christmas. I mean, that's what's really going on. Because this is a major upset. Jesus doesn't come into the world out of the blue. He doesn't drop in out of the sky in a depoliticized environment. He doesn't come out of the blue into an into a irreligious environment. He comes precisely into a point and period of time in which things are very upset. So there's this big backstory running behind this of real upset about what Jesus is doing. But again, what I want you to see this morning is the person and work of the Holy Spirit in this because how does God deal with the threat against his plan? Twice he speaks to Joseph in what? A dream. Okay, so for all the anti-charismatics in the room, I don't know whether there's five of you or two of you or none of you, but just in case there's one. What are you going to do with that? God saved humanity using dreams. And here's the one thing you always have to know, whether it's Moses at the burning bush or Adam in the garden or the prophets of the Old Testament or Peter seeing a vision on a rooftop. In the Bible, your heroes are always acting on knowledge. Did you catch that? They weren't acting in faith the way we think of this sort of mystical, wooey-wooey kind of hope, cross my fingers, it wasn't pizza, that God is actually telling me to take my pregnant wife and go to Egypt. 
mean, that's a big deal. They were relying on what they deemed to be knowledge. God has spoken, yes, in weird ways through a burning bush, but he spoke. Yeah, in a dream, but he spoke. See, there's this ongoing conversational relationship with God that keeps his agenda moving forward. And it's what, it's what will keep the agenda of God moving forward in our midst. It's when you have a dream of how you can make a difference in Orange County. You have a dream how you can make a difference at your place of work or with a family down the street. God will speak to you, and without that, we're toast. Because it isn't all going to come from me. I mean, I've got my own dreams. But they're not your dreams, and they shouldn't be, and vice versa. So it's normative that when there's either crisis or just sort of ongoing leading that God speaks to and helps his people in these very key ways. It's sort of the length to which he will go to help people live in his story. All right, so let's, let's end this way by just asking the question, all right, so what's happening in this big story of exile and then redemption that the prophets foretold about and that Matthew's very careful to say, thus and such happened so that it would be fulfilled what the prophet said. What's happening behind all this? If you want to put it succinctly, here's, here's the really big deal. Herod was not the rightful heir of the throne of David. And everybody hated Herod. This is the big backstory that you have to understand. Herod was thought to be a usurper or an imposter. If you want to understand this, think back to the previous election, not this election cycle, but the one before that, when George Bush did what? He, what did he do to the election? He stole it, remember? Remember that? And remember, like, if you're a Democrat, you're, you may still be seething. I don't know, but I know that five years ago you were seething, right? Because this election was stolen, we said. Well, just multiply that times about 100 and then broaden it to all of society, not just Democrats. And you have what the Jews were experiencing, having to put themselves under Herod, who had stolen this seat of power. Well, Herod knew the Jews hated him. And so when Herod hears that there's this new king who's born of a baby, uh, born a baby of this virgin in this manger, he wasn't just giving us a Christmas story to tell. He was literally afraid of losing his throne and his power and of getting in trouble with his bosses, that this little insurrection might happen in Israel. So, you know, Herod knew that lots of people hated him. And he and his family before him were notoriously ruthless. It's said that Herod the Great even killed members of his own family who he thought were plotting against him. So this is the kind of family. So the Jews know this. Herod's afraid of the Jews. The Jews are afraid of Herod. They know he's ruthless. And this is the backstory that's going on. Jesus is born into a time of trouble, tension, violence, and fear. Did you catch that? Not just sort of around donkey dung. You know, you think, wow, that's really deep, you know. Jesus was born in a manger and around all these animals and they smelled. You know, you kind of think, wow, we're sort of peeling off an onion of the Christmas story and getting sort of deep. No, here's what's deep. Jesus was born in, let me say it again, trouble, tension, violence, and fear. And if I had my laptop open here and just Googled news, as we start the 21st century, the second decade of the 21st century, what would we find? Trouble, 
tension, fear, and violence. In Pakistan marketplaces, in cities in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Ireland, in New York City, on airplanes, all around us. May I say to you this morning, Holy Trinity Church is being born in a time of trouble, tension, fear, and violence. And it's our place. And it's a place in which God will make you safe. You are always safe in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, though a secular reality, though being completely in connection to this troubled, hurt, broken, tension-filled, fear-filled world, is never at risk. The kingdom of God is never at risk. The rule and reign of God will never be set aside by any world historical event. So this is very important. The kingdom of God, while always safe itself, and as we live our life in and through the kingdom of God, then we are always safe. We are then able to stay completely proximate to this broken, hurt world while completely self-differentiating. So Jesus was like fully Jesus, but he was fully in this really broken, hurting world. That's the real backstory. And in that backstory, God calls the people and he puts them in this story and he makes them agents for his good. He fills them with the power of the Holy Spirit. He speaks to them through dreams and visions. Uh, Paul talks about it in the New Testament as words of wisdom, words of knowledge, words of discernment, um, uh, gifts of prophecy, just the ability to sort of see things from God's angle. So when big things come up in human society or when big things come up in your family or big things come up in the workplace, God says, don't worry, I'll be with you in that. And through these gifts of the Spirit, the presence of God with you, I'll help you see things from my angle. The sad thing here is, Jesus didn't actually want anything from Herod. Jesus didn't have the slightest, think about the irony of this. Jesus didn't have the slightest interest in Herod's throne. He made Herod. He made the throne, so to speak. He had no in Herod's throne. He didn't want anything from Herod. He wanted something for him. He wanted Herod to find real life in the kingdom of God. But Jesus was born with this big political dynamite bombshell that would have hit all the newspapers. And so from his birth onwards, Jesus was a threat to the prevailing powers. But to the weak and marginalized, to the ones in exile, to the ones far from God whose society didn't accept and didn't want, to the weak and marginalized, Jesus was the exact opposite. He was the best news humanity had ever heard. Now, we live in a day that's sometimes labeled postmodern. And postmodern just, it kind of helps people see things from different angles and different perspectives. And so, you know, postmodernism, you know, says that context matters and language and all that stuff. So if just simply put, postmodernism, I would say after 10 or 12 years of thinking about it and studying about it, I would say that, okay, we can acknowledge that postmodernism has been really good at helping people see choices that they may not have ever seen. But here is the number one weakness associated with postmodern theory. It is ridiculously impotent at helping people make choices. It's no good at making a choice. But you have to. Because Jesus has dropped right in the middle of your life. 
So now you have to ask, do I have thrones and powers and things that I want to protect from him? Do I got a little Herod story running in me? Or am I more like the weak, the marginalized, the left out, the lost, the last, the least, who see in the coming of Jesus, this great Christmas present of Ollie Ollie income free, is that good news to me or not? And this has been the story that's been running. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.